Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the show where we meet local and regional authors, and sometimes even farther afield with the magic of remote podcasting, and we hear them read their work. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more. And I'm excited about today's episode, so let's get to it. In today's episode, we visit with George Arnold, author of the novel Wyandotte Bound and the Christmas short story, One Minute Past Christmas. Bound, like many other strong words, finds its meaning in the perceptions of those it affects. To the Van Sheltons, it is positive and deep-rooted, defining their ties to a vast amount of land abundant in the timber, cattle, and silver that make them the wealthiest and the most powerful family in the town of Wyudat, and influential throughout the state of Nevada. To J.D. Rohr, who has no money and few prospects, Bound is a perfect force driving him to Wyudat, where he assumes the identity of Jesse Bodine in a desperate attempt to live in obscurity, hiding from his reputation as one of the West's most feared gunfighters. We start the show with the reading from the opening chapter of the book, where a young man desires to prove his worth with his gun against J.D. Rohr wants no part of it, but has little way out but to face the man. And before we're through with this episode, we're going to find out more about One Minute Past Christmas. Chapter One, Drifting. J.D. Rohr hadn't been in that squalid Cowtown saloon any longer that had taken its grimy bartender to pour him a drink of cheap whiskey when trouble began. Familiar trouble. He was bone-tired after spending five days in the saddle, destined for Wyandotte, about 300 miles farther northwest, up Nevada way. All he wanted was a hot meal, a clean bed, and a few supplies when he rode into Concho, Arizona, home of the Cattle Baron, the pretentiously named bar and hash house in which he now stood, facing yet another pathetic nobody eager to risk his life for instant notoriety as a gunfighter. You, J.D. Rohr, the stranger demands, in as menacing a tone as he can muster. J.D. sighs, partly out of weariness and more than a little out of annoyance, as he turns slightly to connect the voice to a jittery young man standing wide-legged about eight feet away. Yeah, J.D. allows matter-of-factly, leaving the pressure of the next word to the tall, slightly built wannabe with bad teeth and sallow complexion. J.D. has no clue who the man is, but he knows the type. 
He has killed five others like him in the two years since he himself outdrew the ironically misnamed Angel Dutch Hendricks, a notorious outlaw feared throughout the Southwest. Unfortunately for J.D., there were witnesses to his past draw, a dozen or so, and it didn't take long for his legend to build and spread widely. After that, the reputation seekers arrived fast and frequently. The name's Colton Schuyler, the gunslinger announces too loudly, making sure he is heard by everyone in the room. And I'm going to put your ass in your grave. J.D. sets his drink gently on the bar to free his right hand for a fight he doesn't want, but recognizes he can't avoid. The challenger's determination is as baldly obvious as his foolish judgment. Don't know you, J.D. replies slowly and deliberately, but I'll say this just once. If your sorry ass ain't out of that door before I empty my drink, I will shoot you dead where you stand. The man of the long oilskin duster blinks noticeably, but manages to square his shoulders and push his coattail behind him, revealing a 4440 Colt revolver stuck loosely in a low-slung holster tied down to his right thigh. That move clears the area around the bar. The cowhands, barmaids, and gamblers have spent more than enough time in saloons to know what's coming. J.D. takes a slow breath and awaits the inevitable. That glory-coveting fool looks a mite shaking by J.D.'s calm demeanor, but he has brazened himself in too deep to back down. He makes his move and is dead the instant he draws his pistol, J.D.'s bullet stopping the beating of his heart as he slumps backward onto the spit, dirt, and litter covering the filthy floor. George T. Honored is a professor emeritus in the W. Page Pitt School of Journalism and Mass Communications at Marshall University, where he taught writing, language skills, ethics, and media for 36 years. He worked full-time for seven years as a newspaper reporter to finance bachelor's and master's degrees from Marshall, and his doctorate in journalism and mass communication is from Ohio University. His textbook resource book, Media Writer's Handbook, A Guide to Common Writing and Editing Problems, is in its seventh edition and third decade of continuous publication. It has been purchased at more than 300 colleges and universities in the United States and abroad and has sold more than 35,000 copies. Dr. Arnold is the author of more than 50 professional and academic articles and has written a short story, One Minute Past Christmas, which we'll talk about on this show, and two novels, YN Dot Bound, published by Speaking Volumes, and Old Mrs. Kimball's Mansion, uh, also with Speaking Volumes, uh, which was released this past fall. George, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Landon. So glad you were having me. Yeah, this is great, and uh, I'm glad we worked through all the technology. We got a couple old guys here doing, uh, you know, podcasting, and, <laughs> and with and with that with that comes the challenges, right? It does indeed. I warned you that I was a technological dunce. <laughs> well, th- well, that's all right. Uh, I won't hold that against you. I've been a technological dunce since I started doing this uh, podcast. But uh, hey, listen, I'm so excited to have you on the show today because uh, I grew up reading westerns, uh, read westerns at the beach. Uh, was a Louis L'Amour fan. Uh, I want to talk a little bit. Uh, we're going to talk more about your writing life uh, before the show's out. But um, you know, you've been an academics all your life, and you've been uh, a journalist. Uh, and uh, I'm just curious. Uh, 
you know, one of your first pieces of fiction is a Western. What drew you to writing Westerns? I grew up watching Westerns. I, I grew up in the late 40s and the 50s. And every Saturday in one of our three local theaters and all over the United States, as a matter of fact, it was the B-series Cowboy Arrow with Roy Rogers and Gene Autry, the Durango Kid, Lash LaRue, and a whole bunch of others that I could name. And every boy, and I'd say at least 50% of the girls too, spent every Saturday afternoon in that little theater and wherever they lived in the United States watching a double feature of these old cowboy movies. And they always had a running serial that featured somebody like a, a, a guy named Beatty who always fended off blinds with a chair and a whip week after week. And they always had at least two cartoons. And we paid no attention. Movies ran continuously back in those days. And so we paid no attention to when we walked in. We could walk in the middle, the end. We didn't care because we always stayed and watched every movie and every cartoon twice. So, so, so for a so for a quarter, our parents got rid of us for an entire afternoon, and they didn't have to feel guilty about it because there was nowhere else on earth we'd rather be. It was a it was a wonderful time to grow up, and I love those cowboys. And since then, you know, we graduated to the more sophisticated westerns like The Searchers with John Wayne and Red River and so many other great ones. And even today when Kevin Cosner uh, or Clint Eastwood, who is uh, getting a little old now, he's not making cowboy movies anymore. Anytime I get a chance to see a good cowboy or the series like Lonesome Dove, I'm just glued to the television set or whatever I happen to be watching it through. I've just never lost my love of cowboy stories. Well, uh, George, it's interesting you mentioned Lonesome Dove. The listeners will know this. I probably uh, I say it too much, but uh, Lonesome Dove is one of my favorites of all time, and I named my two rescue dogs after characters from Lonesome Dove. One of them, one of them is Gus, and the other is Lori Darling. So, uh, yeah. so, so I, I grew up and uh, you know uh, watching. Of course, I had to pay a little more than a quarter growing up. You dated yourself a little bit with that. Uh, I sure did. And 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 you also that also explains why you had to make three trips to uh, the Geek Squad to get your computer set up to do this podcast, right? <laughs> exactly. And it's, and, and it's even, I dated myself even worse than it sounds because in the late 1940s, our local theater charged 15 cents to get in. So our parents would give us a quarter and popcorn, candy bars, and a soft drink were a nickel each in those days. So we paid 15 cents to get in. It left us a nickel over for popcorn, another nickel for a candy bar. They were much bigger back then, by the way. Or we could get a soft drink. So we, so in my case, there were, there were four of us kids. So for one dollar, our parents got rid of us for five or six hours every Saturday afternoon. And as I said before, they didn't have to feel guilty because they, they knew there was no place we'd rather be. Yeah. So what part of the world did you grow up in, George? I grew up in southern West Virginia in a, a city called Beckley. I thought it was a big city at the time. It had about nineteen or twenty thousand. And by West Virginia standards, that's a fairly decent-sized town. The two largest cities in the state, Charleston, which is the state capital, and Huntington, where Marshall University is located, have never had more than 60,000 people each within their town limits. Their metro areas are much bigger. But that, relatively speaking, I thought I grew up in a fairly good-sized town until I got out in the world a little bit and found out 20,000 
wasn't a whole lot compared with Chicago. Yeah, well, you, th- you throw out a bunch of names as far as Westerns go, the, the era that you watched when you could pay 15 cents to see it, and then you got into the John Wayne era, and then you're moving into uh, you know Robert Duvall, Clint Eastwood, and Tommy Lee Jones and all those kind of things. But uh, I, I'm wondering, so, th- so that era also included Randolph Scott, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, didn't he play in like more cowboy movies than anybody that was out there? Well, he, he was one of my favorites, but I don't remember uh, Randall Scott ever playing in a B movie. His, okay. movie. his movies were a little upgraded from that. But if you ever pay attention to him, he wore the same thing in almost every movie. He had a he had a, a well-worn leather uh, coat that came down maybe four or five inches below his waist. And it looked like it had been well oiled because it had dark and light spaces in it. And he always wore a, a cowboy hat, but he usually had a little strap that came under his chin. Unlike I never saw John Wayne or anybody else wear that sort of thing. But Randolph Scott was one of my favorites. And I loved his Tidewater, uh, Virginia accent. It didn't sound very Western, but he had a beautiful speaking voice. Well, for those that, uh, of course, this is Charlotte Rivers Podcast headquartered in Charlotte, North Carolina. There's a cemetery in Charlotte called Elmwood Cemetery, and uh, Randolph Scott is buried in Elmwood Cemetery, and so here in Charlotte. So uh, they had a little uh, reenactor deal a couple of years ago where the these actors would stand beside graves and uh, pretend to be the people you know that uh, had passed on and were buried there. And he and there was Randolph Scott when I walked up, replete in his in his cowboy outfit. <laughs> <laughs> ready to talk about it uh so okay well let's do this a, a minute i'd like to know because we're going to talk about your uh your book why a dot uh bound in, uh, in more detail here on the show but uh what in your mind makes a good western well uh of course they have to have some action and uh one of the, it used to sort of bother me even when i was a child and, and a lot more when i got to be grown up that in watching a Western, sometimes I'd have to watch 20 minutes to a half hour before they had a gunfight. And all, <laughs> I started off Wyandotte Bound with a gunfight on purpose so that my readers would not have to wait 20, 30, 40, 50 pages in the book or so somebody drew a gun out of a holster. So in the very first paragraph, uh, J.D. Rohr, the, the uh, gunfighter by chance, he didn't want to be a gunfighter. He just kind of fell into it through his job as a deputy sheriff at a very fast draw. So I started the book with a gunfight. And so far, the feedback has been wonderful on that. Uh, there are an awful lot of people out there that felt the same way that I do. They want some action to begin with. And then yeah. uh, when I was a kid, I, I hated romance in the B movies. You know, I, I thought the girls just got in the way because I was seven or eight years old and I didn't find out that, that females could be more fascinating until I hit my teens. And so then the uh, B-movies, the only women I like were the grandmothers and mothers who fixed nice meals for the cowboys and were very kind to them. But then as I got a little bit older, I found that uh, you know, I think like Westerns, like the type that I wrote, need some romance in them. And not only because that's part of adult life, but also I was very much aware, very, very much aware that people had told me, and I had presumed without doing any research, that many women readers, and that seems to be the majority of people who buy books, would be turned off by the subject of Westerns. So I had women very much in mind when I wrote this book. There are a lot of strong women in Wyandotte Bound, characters who have very mature roles that are very intelligent 
And uh, most of the uh, comments that I have received through reviews on Amazon or Goodreads or wherever, most have come from women. And two or three of them have just come right out and said, this is not usually what I read. But a couple of them knew me, and I told them, I said, well, read it and from a perspective of, of a woman and tell me what you think. And uh, they liked it because I had strong women characters and romance running throughout the book. Yeah, it's interesting. You, talk, you, you hit on two topics there, the inciting incident uh, and romance. And I'm like you, uh, when I picked up this book and started reading it, I really enjoyed the fact that we got into the action early on with the gunfight. It's probably why romance authors put sex in the first 15 pages, right? <laughs> you don't want to, you, you know, the one thing I think most Americans have in common is that uh, we're impatient people and instant gratification doesn't come quickly enough. And, and you know, you talked about strong women. It is important. Uh, you know, I would always have these, uh, books on the beach or reading them. And my wife would joke with me. She said, I can tell you exactly how that Western is going to end. You know, and it was always the guy riding off in the sunset. Right. And I never could understand why after the guy came to town and saved the town and saved the school marm and saved who, you know, whoever, that then he'd get on his horse and ride out and leave a beautiful woman by, <laughs> by, by in town. But that's always how it was. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah when I was a little kid, I didn't care. But yeah. after I got to be a teenager and found out women were much more fascinating, uh, then I, I had the, uh, I wondered the same thing you did. Why in the world would you leave somebody that attractive and that desirable and that beautiful and that smart behind? Yeah, well, let's talk, you, you mentioned romance. Let's talk a little bit about how Westerns are uh, different today than they were then. I think um, it seems like the ones that are successful today, they do bring some of that uh, drama uh, from the past. Uh, but of course they've got more cinematic quality to them. You mentioned Lonesome Dove, you know, I think, I think it's, what was the one, uh, about the train to Yuma, uh, which was a oh, great, yeah. great movie. And, uh, you know, just, I think it's as, as much the setting sometimes, um, and the relationships. Uh, but I think the more modern day Westerns, well, you, you speak to it. What do you think the modern day, how does the modern day Western draw people in? I think it's become much more sophisticated. Without without actually seeming obviously sophisticated, because the themes are, are not easy to follow. In the B-movies, they made those so that 8, 9, and 10, and 11-year-old kids could follow the plots. And there weren't maybe, what, three or four plots. And we didn't care because we always wanted the white hat, the good guys, to win anyway. And they always did. And, of course, there was, if you remember, there was no blood. People got shot but they never bled. They never suffered terribly or anything like that. And in most cases, the big heroes, I don't think Roy Rogers ever killed anybody in all the movies he made. He shot the gun out of their hand or trigger ran, or trigger ran over them and knocked the gun out of their hands. And I didn't, you know, I, that was just natural growing up. I didn't think about that sort of thing until I got much older. But today there are, there are things, for example, Red River, which is considered one of the great, classics of all time the character played by john wayne and the one played by montgomery clift his son they come they they clash they come to great odds they even uh, take control of the herd from each other and there's great bitterness so it shows conflicts even within families and different philosophies between older uh people like john wayne who had been a strong rancher before that and younger men like montgomery clift 
who have different ways of settling disputes and having things done. Uh, and also, in the as far as the women were concerned, uh, I think in the uh, more sophisticated movies, they're not at all reluctant to speak up and and uh, and let men know when they think that they're wrong, and even take uh, action on their own to that, that directly affects the plots of movies. And uh, that 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 in other words, I just think there's, I think that uh, the the adult I'll call them adult westerns are really not meant for seven or eight or nine-year-old children anymore because they wouldn't really understand them. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, probably the making of Westerns, like the making of movies in general, probably evolves, you know, with time in the sense that, uh, you know, women um, have found their place more uh, in, in the last 30, 40, 50 years. And so I think the men who are making the movies are starting to make more realistic, as you said, movies about the West where they're, I mean, you couldn't have conquered the West without strong women. You know, no. if, if there hadn't been strong women out there, it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't have happened. And it, I don't, I'm sorry, I can't remember the the show on Netflix, but there was a, a great little mini series on Netflix about a small mining town where all the men were killed uh, in, in a, in a mine collapse, leaving the women behind and the women had to fend for themselves and come together and fend off this marauding group of ex-Civil War, you, you know, uh, you know, criminals that were coming to town, and they did it in a shoot 'em up way. So it's sort of like women are, are strapping on the, on the on the guns and taking control. So it really has progressed a little bit. Let, let's do this. Let's talk about uh, plot and characters for just a minute. You, we've done the opening scene. We've done the inciting incident. We know that J.D. Roar is trying to escape his past to some extent because. Uh, he's a gunfighter, and that's a little bit of a, you know, a trope in westerns where where the gunfighter, you know, is being besieged by others who want to prove their worth against him, and so he has to kind of, you know, duck out and keep on the trail, and it's a lonely life. But in this case, he's trying to uh, set up a new life, you know, change his name, goes to a new town, and he meets these characters, uh, the Van Sheltons. Tell us about the Van Sheltons. Well, the Van Sheltons are the kind of families that I'm interested in, whether it's a Western uh, book or movie uh, or any other kind. I like dynastic, wealthy, powerful, dynastic families. I've always been attracted to books that had those kinds of people in it. And the Van Sheltons are uh, the wealth, the wealthiest family in Wyandotte. They have a huge, huge ranch that would take days to, to, to ride over it. And they're in the cattle business, the timber business, and they also got in on the uh, silver business through some connections they had during the uh, the, the famous Comstock load. But they have uh, it, the family uh, consists of a uh, an intelligent uh, father and a very intelligent mother, uh, both of whom are, are very sensible. Then they have two sons who are direct opposites of one another. One is Reuben, who is uh, who has a degree from Harvard. Wealthy families in the West sent their children back east to school. And he is a mild-mannered person who wants nothing to do with guns. He uses his brains. Then they have a younger son named Bram, and he's tough as shoe leather. And he has no interest in higher education of any kind. He lives on the range with, him, with his men. He runs everything on the ranch except for the buying, the selling of the cattle, which his older brother Reuben and his father take care of. 
and he is a tough character who works very hard. He works his men very hard. He frequents uh, houses of ill repute. He gambles, and uh, he is a character who evolves over the, the books written in four parts. But when people first meet him, they're not going to like him at all. Uh, but he evolves as the book uh, goes on, becomes one of the most interesting characters in the book. It sounds a little bit like the uh, brothers in Bonanza, right? Little Joe was probably the one that was always getting into trouble and uh, being a little more rascalian. And then there was, uh, who, who was it, Hoss or what? Yeah, they were. <laughs> <laughs> then, and then there was a third one who who was more educated. I can't remember his name. Adam, Part, maybe. The, the, well, Adam, played by Parnell Jones. Well, yeah. the only thing is, Little Joe was always likable. Bram starts out not being likable at all. Yeah. And then add to this uh, mix of characters, uh, a, a local doctor in town um, who, who comes to town also to kind of escape his past. And you've got another thread going on here with his life. Um, talk about that because he came from the big city, comes out west. Tell well, us about the doctor. Uh, the Van Sheltons have a daughter named uh, Stephanie, and she is just absolutely gorgeous. She has spent the past nine years of her life or so in the East uh, going to finishing schools. And uh, she comes, she's only been back in Nevada for about uh, a year and a half, still trying to settle in because her life in the East was so much different. Well, one of her many suitors back in the East was a man from one of the wealthiest and best-known families, oldest families in Boston. And he is a physician. Uh, and uh, he pursues her, and he comes west. And, of course, he is uh, very – he comes west, for first of all, for a visit for uh, about three weeks, and he uh, has no clue what the west is all about. But he, in very good spirit, he outfits himself in western wear and tries to fit in as best he can, and he's a very likable character. And uh, he falls into a rivalry with J.D. Rohr, the gunfighter, who by now has changed his name to Jesse Bodine, uh, which is Jesse's his real first name. He never liked it, so he went by J.D. Bodine is his mother's maiden name, so that's what he goes by. And he becomes an unlikely rival with the physician. I mean, how can you compare one of the wealthiest people in Boston, a six-foot-three-inch, extraordinarily handsome well-educated man, but J.D. Rohr, who's, who's a, a very, very nice, kind person who became a gunfighter simply by accident. He was the deputy sheriff, and he happened to outdraw one of the most notorious gunfighters in the West. And so people came after him wanting to build their reputation. Well, anyway, they have a romantic rivalry in part one of the book for Stephanie. And, uh, and that's how the, the uh, physician uh, from the East, Dr. Carlisle, Albert Frederick Albert Carlisle, his friends call him Freddie, uh, comes there and he uh, he comes back and plays a very major role throughout the rest of the book. Yeah, and as all this is going on, you've got, as you do in most westerns and most books that have conflict involved, you've got somebody that's uh, they've got the role of the evildoer. Um, and, you know, you, you've got a railroad that's looking for a small town to put its to, to put its uh, rail line through. And right. And well, so we well, got we got a little read here, George, that 
we're going to do from another part of the book that uh, kind of speaks to that issue. Anything you want to say to set that reading up? Well, the uh, characters uh, that come into this conflict come in part two and part three. Uh, and there is uh, a character that readers get to know in part two. And they see him, I don't want to give too much away because there's a surprise in part three, but they see him, readers will see him in one light in part two. And in part three, they will see him in an entirely different role, which I hope will surprise them. But Wyandotte, a relatively small town, has an opportunity to become a railroad center. And in the West in those days, as you know, if you could become a railroad center, your city could grow by leaps and bounds because you, all the cattle would be herded in there, put on railroads to be sent east and so forth. And But this one person is an evil force who's trying to cut out the Van Sheltons and other uh, powerful families who want to do well not only for themselves, but for the other people in their town and their community. This one evil person wants it all for himself, and he's a schemer. Part three, 15 years later, the transformation of Wyandotte. It burns me up that I can buy and sell every one of those pissant broom pushers and saloon swabbers, but even the lowliest of them take walking for granted and can produce snotty-nosed kids with no more effort than it takes to drop their drawers. Chapter One, The Reigning Stallion. As regular as clockwork, Several dozen habitual gawkers exit the shops, restaurants, and supply stores of downtown Wyandotte for their weekday ritual, just as they have for the past four years. They are joined by curious visitors who follow Pied Piper-like from the hotel, not knowing quite what to expect, but determined not to be left out of whatever is about to transpire. They do not have to wait long. At precisely 9 a.m., they observe the arrival on Main Street of the most ostentatious open carriage they've ever seen. It is deep black with several coatings of lacquer that reflect the early morning sun. A multicolored family crest of dubious authenticity adorns each side door and overstuffed red leather seats boost the passengers to throne height. A pair of sleek black horses in plumed headdress and heavy silver harness are driven by a tall, broad-shouldered coachman in formal coat, top hat, and knee-high boots. Its occupants are a man and a woman. Their dress is painstakingly elaborate, purposely designed to be conspicuous. Their attire is accentuated by a showy assemblage of oversized diamond rings, stick pins, and bracelets sparkling from every appendage the human body can respectably expose. Altogether, it makes for quite a show, one meticulously calculated to impress, provoke envy, and leave no doubt that the couple are pearls among swine. The man is a power in Wyandotte. His wealth and the underhanded methods he uses to acquire his money make him the most hated, and the most feared of the town's movers and shakers. His young woman is the most extraordinarily beautiful and desirable his considerable fortune can buy, and he misses no opportunity to flaunt her face and body before every other man 
leaving no doubt that he has positioned himself as the reigning stallion of the herd, and the others presumably must make do with his leaving. The show ends when the driver stops, not in front of the finest office building at Wyandotte, but behind it, shielded from view in the alley. All right, listeners, uh, we'll be back uh, just in just a moment after this uh, short break. And uh, when we do, we're going to we're gonna do Writing Life segment with uh, George. We're going to talk about his transfer from uh, journalism to fiction writing. And we're going to do a little bit about uh, Christmas as well. So please stay with us. Because this is December and because I've written a series of books about lawyers who save Christmas, this episode is partially sponsored by me. You can find out more about my Christmas courtroom trilogy at landisway.com. The first book in that trilogy is permanently free. A number of retail sites and links on that uh, website, landisway.com, where you can download that uh, first book. All three books are now also out on audiobook, and information is uh, there at the website about that as well. And I thought I'd play just a little clip here uh, from the second book in the series. This is where... Twirly Masters, the client in the second book, is meeting for the first time Thad Raker, the lawyer who saves Christmas three times. Of course, he has help from others. And in this little uh, clip, you're going to hear them talking about this idea of belief, an idea that's on trial in all three of the books. So enjoy this little clip uh, between Twirly Masters and Thad Raker in the second book, The Legally Binding Christmas. I'm not a true believer, Raker said at last. Not anymore, so maybe I'm not the lawyer for you. Masters got out of his chair and walked to the window. Raker could see him looking at the courthouse. He then turned to face Raker. Thad, may I offer you some advice? There are two kinds of people, those who believe and those who don't. Some say there is no difference between the lives of believers and non-believers, but I have seen the difference with my own eyes felt it in my heart. Yes, I have. Yes, indeed. Times are not always easy. Tough things happen to good people. Life can hit you hard. You can suffer for reasons that are unexplainable, and there are things you can't control. But I can tell you something that's absolutely, positively wonderful and true. You and only you control your beliefs, and no one can rob you of them. Belief is free. Yes, it is. And maybe, just maybe, if you believe hard enough, you will have a return on investment that cannot be measured or predicted. Raker was already weary, and his day was just getting started. He wanted to tell Twirly Masters to leave, but he couldn't do it. He had a feeling, nothing more, but it was one he hadn't experienced since the day he met Henry Edmonds. Raker thought himself the fool, but he decided to hear the man out. Hope you enjoyed listening to that clip from the second book uh, in the Christmas Courtroom Trilogy, The Legally Binding Christmas. The narrator is named Bill A. Jones. He's best known as an actor for his humorous role as a news anchor, Rod Remington, on Fox TV's Glee. He's also appeared on Comedy Central's Workaholics, The King of Queens, CSI New York, Everybody Hates Chris, General Hospital, Days of Our Lives, and many other shows, and he's done voiceover work such clients as the Disney Channel and Warner Brothers and the Fox Movie Channel. And he was named one of L.A.'s best concert cabaret artists. Uh, He really did bring to life uh, the story uh, in all three books, and I had a a great time working with him. If you'd like to find out more about the trilogy, uh, both the uh, 
print books, the ebooks, and the audiobooks. Uh, again, you can go to landiswade.com and check those out. But having said all that, uh, let's get back to the episode. All right, George, we're now back and we're talking, uh, we've been talking about uh, Westerns and we talked about how you chose that as the theme for your first work of fiction because, hey, you grew up watching Westerns, love Westerns. Um, my question is, how'd you get to start to writing fiction anyway? Because for years you were in academics and you were doing journalism and that's a little bit different than writing fiction. Yeah, well, I had been retired for 10 years. And I was still keeping up uh, with my textbook resource book. I was writing new editions every third year. And that was that was the writing that I was doing. I had no intention of writing fiction. I'd never tried it before. Uh, had never really seriously considered it. But something happened one night in the small town that I live in. There were four of us kids growing up. And we said we'd try to retire to the same place. And that's a, a small city in South Carolina called Lancaster. It's only about 40 miles below where you live in Charlotte. We love living in a small community because whatever we need, medical, entertainment, uh, shopping, Charlotte, of course, is a thriving city and has all of it. Well, in uh, when I was, let's see, it's been about uh, eight years ago, seven or eight years ago, my sister Patty and my brother, who's now deceased, we were riding around town. And I noticed it was like the day after Christmas, and there was some people still buy live Christmas trees. Back in, in my day, when I was growing up, everybody bought live Christmas trees. It always bothered me, but made me feel sad the day or so after Christmas when I'd drive around anywhere I lived, no matter how old I was growing up or later. And I would see Christmas trees that were cut, and nobody ever bought them. So they're lying there in those lots the day after Christmas. They were planted, they were cared for, they were chopped, and nobody ever used them. And I felt really felt sorry for them. It made me feel bad. And so I just happened to make the offhand remark. I said, I've got a great ending for a short story that involves these Christmas trees, if somebody would just write it. And my sister Patty, just matter of fact, they said, well, you know how to write. Why don't you write it? And I said, well, I said, Patty, I know how to write. I mean, I know grammar and punctuation thoroughly. I know how to put sentences and paragraphs together. And I know about transition and syntax, and I could write academically and journalistically. Because I don't, I said to write fiction, you have to be creative. You have to have an imagination, and I don't have a clue. She said, "Why don't you try to write it?" So I did. I wrote the short story, "One Minute Past Christmas," and uh, I love the title. It sounds a little immodest to say, but I was a headline writer for so many years that I'm pretty good at writing headlines. And so one minute past Christmas suited me just fine because uh, something happens in the book at one minute past Christmas that perhaps we can talk about. But anyway, I tried it. And uh, the hardest thing for me to do, Landis, was to give myself permission to make things up. Because uh, in journalism, if it works the way it's supposed to work, the way I taught it, the writer keeps himself or herself out of the story. You stick with the facts and you quote people who have opinions of their own who are central to the story. And you also have to watch your, your, the way that you use adjectives because you can't use descriptive adjectives unless you quote them from somebody because you're coloring or flavoring the story. And that's not objectivity. That's not fairness in writing. 
So I had, uh, it, it, once I wrote this short story, I got over that quickly. I loved, probably loved being able to sit out on a computer and just make up stuff. And I wasn't responsible to anybody for what I wrote. So it was a little rough to begin with, but that's how I got started. Well, you know, George, they do say, though, that in writing fiction, uh, sometimes fiction can bring out some truths that aren't apparent to people when they read the newspaper or they read a nonfiction work. There's a lot of truth in fiction. Exactly. And that's why I think we have editorial pages and op-ed pages and commentaries and all of that sort of thing allowed in journalism, because that's the only way sometimes you can put things into perspective. Uh, but but the, the, the major thing, what really, really pleased me so much and what caused me to keep on writing fiction was it turned out to be so darn much fun uh, because I wasn't responding. You know, if, if I wrote it and nothing ever happened to it except a couple of my family members and friends wrote it, well, that's, that's fine, you know, but, because I wasn't doing it for a living and I wasn't restricted. And I just, and, and, uh, and I, I said to a, a colleague of mine at Marshall University a few months ago when I was visiting there, uh, he said, you ought to talk to one of our English classes. I said, if I visited an English class taught by one of their professors and they said, George, tell us how to write a novel, I'd say, I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> because I did not, I, I don't know how all of us work, but a few, I've talked to a few. And many of them, they sketch up and they plot out the whole book. They know what the ending's going to be. They know what the, how they're going to work their way through the chapters. But I didn't want to do that because that, that didn't sound like fun to me. Both of the novels that I've written, I sat down and wrote. I, just, yeah. I had an idea and I let it flow. And in the first one, Why Not Bound, I wrote it chapter after chapter and never went back and changed any of the chapters, never rewrote them. I went back and, and worked on my wording made my wording a little bit better and, and shortened some sentences and things like that. But I didn't change anything. Now, the second one, uh, because I let a former student of mine, who's a very smart reader, she said, when you reach this part, you left out some central characters for about 50 pages, you know, we forgot who they were. So I had to go back and rewrite those. But it was just, it was then and it is now just simply great fun. And I found myself on a couple of chapters just laughing to myself as I wrote through them because I liked them. It was going, and I was having so daggone much fun with it. Yeah, well, that's that's a great uh, testimony to what it means to be a writer. And I've talked to a lot of different writers on the show about how they work and their processes. And what you do is what they describe as being a pantser. You know, you're writing by the seat of your pants, and you're looking to see what happens next. And uh but some writers who are trying to put out, you know, books uh, faster than that, they might come up with an outline. But even then, when I've talked to outliners, they say uh, that the outline can't be, you know, a, a, a definite construct. It has to just be exactly that, an outline, because they like also having the freedom to go in different places, you know, when the when the muse takes them there. That's part of part of the fun of doing it. Right. But I guess I've got this question for you, George, you know, I'm looking at this book you wrote, the media writer's handbook. It's a thick book and I'm gonna have it on my shelf here. Cause there's a lot of good stuff in here uh, that I think that fiction writers can use too. And, uh, but I, I guess I have one question. What did you have to unteach yourself as a journalist to write fiction? 
mainly to, uh, as I, I think, just to repeat myself briefly, is uh, just to uh, not restrict myself by the rules of journalistic and academic writing. They're very restricted, especially in academic writing when you're writing for peers. And if you get published something in a reviewed publication, you're going to get jumped all over if you have a mistake in it because academics are very much that way. They criticize everything. And uh, I, I think I, I told one publisher who considered my book before I found a publisher who, who took it. Uh, it, was a, it was a man who, uh, who publishes only Western books. And I've sent him a couple of chapters and, and they did some editing, sent it back. And their editing on my punctuation was totally wrong. They were wrong with everything. <laughs> so I called him up and as nicely as I said, I said, look, I said, I've got a long way to go as a fiction writer, but I know grammar like the back of my hand. And I know punctuation. My punctuation is perfect in there. And you've changed it at least 15 times in the first 25 pages. And you're wrong. And I can point out the rule to you. He said, George, he said, you know that Western uh, cowboys didn't speak perfect English. And I said, I know that because I have my characters speaking imperfect English, but punctuation is the same whether you're speaking uh, correctly or, or, or writing correctly or not. A comma is a comma, an apostrophe is an apostrophe. They perform the same job whether you're saying ain't, A-I-N apostrophe T, or weren't, in W-R-E-N apostrophe T, look the same function. So I've, I just simply had to give myself permission to let go of being worried about uh, somebody uh, judging my work journalistically or academically, because in fiction, I don't think you do that at all. Uh, and the, the other thing is that, uh, I, I mean, I, I know that nothing I've written or perhaps will ever write is going to advance the state of literature. <laughs> <laughs> so, so my favorite writer is John Grisham. And yeah. to, par to paraphrase him extremely roughly, he, he said, in effect, he writes for entertainment. And I was hoping people who read my books will just enjoy reading them and will, uh, you know, when they take it to the beach or they read my Christmas story at Christmas time or whatever, I want them just to enjoy the book. Uh, I knew, and, and I think writing fiction would be a lot harder if you were trying to take on a very, very serious subject like race relations or something like that. Then I think the book would become a lot of work because you'd be dealing with a subject that intellectually, and I'm dealing with subjects in an, from an entertainment point of view. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. I I, I grew up to uh, enjoying John Grisham, um, you know, being a lawyer myself and just, uh, you know, dealing with everyday legal stuff and then reading one of his books. I asked him one time, I said, you know, why do you write about uh, judges and lawyers that uh, are unethical and committing illegal acts? I said, that's probably, uh, you know, only a very small percentage of us who do that. And he said, yeah, but that's what readers like to read. <laughs> you know, uh, he's right. And, and that's what he said. He said, uh, I, I, I got carried away and forgot to make my point. John Grisham, I think, rough paraphrase, says he writes for entertainment. Yeah. He too, but now, so he's not advancing literature. You know, uh, he's not going to be Charles or anybody like that. But boy, he's interesting. He tells great stories. And my second favorite subject after Westerns are courtroom dramas. That's why I always like Law and Order and Perry Mason. 
I'll still get two Perry Mason reruns through my uh, uh, the company that the cable company, and I still watch those. I like courtroom dramas, so I enjoy the law too. And I, after I finished my PhD in mass communications and journalism, I told my wife, uh, who's no longer living, I told her, I said, you know, I would really like to go to law school. She said, if you want a divorce, <laughs> well, I was in my thirties when I finished that last degree. She said, "This is it. We're not going. We're not going to go through this again." But I find the law is fascinating, and I, I think that's one of the reasons I like John Grisham. And I don't know whether people pay much attention, but he he is witty. I mean, he he says some really really funny. He's sarcastic. I love sarcasm as long as it's not aimed at me. But he writes he writes wonderful sarcasm. George, did your wife get to read your short story and uh, your Western before she died? No, I'm afraid not. But she knew the book. Uh, I finished the uh, textbook. The first edition came out the year after she died in 1994. She knew about the book. And uh, and she, uh, uh, I got married a little late. I got married when I was 31. So I finished a master's degree when I was 24. But uh, she, uh, she was a nurse. And so she uh, worked. Uh, I had a teaching fellowship at Ohio University to help pay pay the tuition and all that. But she worked and helped me put through uh, put me through the PhD program. So uh, a lot of her she so she saw all of that. She helped through my dissertation and she saw everything that I wrote for for the first edition of the textbook. But she had she and I had no clue back in those days that I've been her trial fiction. What do you think, George? Since she knew you as she did as a uh, academic and writing dissertations and journalist articles, what do you think she'd say to you today about uh, your fiction writing? Well, first of all, I think that she would get a kick out of it. Secondly, I think she'd be very proud. Yeah, because she, she she was extremely encouraging, uh, as all uh, good spouses are, male or female, and. Uh, and uh, she would have been, if, if I told her I wanted to try it, she would have been, uh, along with my sister, Patty, she would have said the same thing. Well, give it a try. You know how to write. So would she have gotten on you, George, if you didn't have some strong female characters in that book? She would have noticed. <laughs> 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 yes, she would have. But, I, but, you know, I'll tell you something else, uh, Landis. In all the years that I taught, I had some, uh, like all teachers, I had some terrific students just so smart. And uh, the smartest student I ever had happened to be a male from a small town in West Virginia who was just brilliant. He has a law degree from Harvard now. But the majority, no offense to any of my former male students, I had many great ones, but the majority of my really good students were female. And they were the ones who you'd come see you during office hours. The guys, of course, would come if they needed to. But my office, I would say probably the people who came to see me for whatever kind of help, students, would run three to one females, maybe four to one. So I had great respect for uh, the female intellect because a lot of those students now are in their 50s. A few might even be 60. And some have become really good friends. And uh, uh, we offer each other advice from time to time. Because they're no longer students, we don't have that relationship. They, uh, a couple of them have had a hard time calling me George, <laughs> but but after but I but we've gotten that relationship, and actually I've gotten some good advice. Uh, both of the uh, novels that I wrote, 
I have read by, I have two uh, former students read each of those uh, before I ask anybody else to. And I did it because one of them was a journalist who had been a copy editor for many years. And one had, and one was a, uh, worked in public relations at a university. And she was a, a super bright student. And I told them, be, be, be as critical as you can possibly be. And, uh, and so I have a lot of respect for women and their intelligence. And there's no way I could write a book now without having strong, some strong female characters in there. Because after John Grisham, I think my, my next four favorite writers are women. Yeah, that's great. So we're going to do this, George, um, with a little time we have left. Uh, you've talked about your Christmas story. We've got a little read here from the Christmas story because uh, we're in the mood here. It's December. We're kind of getting closer to Christmas. So anything to set up this particular reading? This piece comes not far from the end of the short story, and it gives the background for the Christmas wonder that the grandfather and his granddaughter see at one minute, precisely one minute past Christmas every year. And they have been concerned because for 44 years, no other member of the family has had the gift of being able to see what they see at one minute after 12. And it will leave the reader hanging a little bit, but it will give them enough background to understand this part of the story. Christmas 1994. For 45 consecutive years, at precisely one minute past Christmas, Jared Nicholas and I stood on the second story balcony of our fifth generation family home, witnessing a miraculous gathering in the sky that only we are privileged to see. Except for that first year when it was necessary for 47-year-old Jared to explain the phenomenon to then nine-year-old, my grandfather and I watched mostly in silence. We desired nothing to distract us from those few precious moments that come only once a year. We never knew for certain if we would see it again. How we succeeded every year in stealing this brief time just for ourselves depended on as much on luck as on planning. Christmas Day itself was our greatest ally, funning the energy from the other family members and wearying them to sleep by 10 or 11 o'clock. But every time we slipped away, Papa Jared and I wished we could share our experience with the others. I can't help feeling guilty, I confessed many times. We've received a gift so all out of proportion to what the others know. And Papa Jared, as kindly as he knew how, continually reassured me. Even if the others were on the balcony with us, they wouldn't see anything from out of the ordinary. We longed hope, even prayed, that another relative would come along to share our experience. But so many births came and so many years passed that we just gave up. Jared's paternal grandfather was the first, as far as Jared knew, and his grandfather was long gone. We accepted the fact that I would likely be the last. Not a single soul knows our secret although we were often sorely tempted to share it with others. 
not a family member, a friend, or a member could claim our tale. No one. I had no desire to spend the rest of my life trying to persuade other people to believe something that's still almost unbelievable to me, Jarrett often declared. Neither of us wanted to be looked upon as being out of touch with reality or worse. We once briefly considered bringing a psychiatrist into our confidence, but we dismissed the idea because we were so normal and just plain ordinary in every other way. Moreover, we didn't want a stranger to be the only other person to know. As Jared grew older, however, the secrecy, like the constant rush of water against a river bank, eventually wore his resistance away, and by his mid-80s, Jared was determined that our story would not end with our passing. So he asked my permission to write about the first year we shared the experience, and I readily agreed, agreed to it. The writing itself took much more time and many more attempts than Jared anticipated. At length, he hit upon the idea to tell the story into a tape recorder, and I would transcribe it. Things went a whole lot faster after that. Jared was plenty intelligent, but he was a much better talker, as his writing experiences consisted of little more than scribbling to-do lists and preparing sales receipts. He especially agonized over the issue of his and my credibility, even though our story was unlikely to be read by anyone who ever met us. He went so far as to take legal means to protect our story until we were both long dead and gone and nobody would be able to touch us. This story may not be shared with another unless Jessica Nicholas Lawrence gives her permission until 50 years after her demise. Paul Paul Jarrett said, we'll deal with the skeptics and cynics first. Then we'll be able to enjoy writing for people more likely to have some of their childlike wonder. Okay, George, that's uh, that little reading has sort of kind of put us in the mood, but kind of left some things unanswered about your Christmas story there. So uh, looking forward to that. People can find that online, I suppose, just like they can with uh, with your novels. But speaking of novels, the one that just came out, tell us briefly what that's about. Uh, that novel is uh, one that I set in Southern West Virginia, where I grew up. I purposely did not write my first novel about for, about anything that I experienced personally other than going to the movies. Uh, because everybody's, uh, everybody tells me that a person's first novel is out of autobiographical. I want to make sure that mine was not, and it wasn't. But this one is set in Southern West Virginia in the time period that I know well, from 1950 till about 1989. Most of it toward the 1980s, but some flashbacks to the uh, 1950s. And it's more of a romance than anything else strong romantic themes running throughout it, but it also, and I told you one of my favorite subjects is, the last chapters in it are a trial. So there's a murder, an important murder that takes place, but it is a, it is like love's lost at the beginning. All right, George, well, I think it's great that you found a way to write about your passions. You wrote a Western because you love Westerns. You've 
written a book now that incorporates your love of uh, legal trials. And uh, so hats off to you for having fun writing fiction. Listeners, you can find out more about George in the show notes. There'll be links to him and uh, his books and how you can find them. And uh, George, I just want to thank you uh, for uh, coming on the show and uh, sharing your work with our listeners. Well, listen, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate that very much. And I've enjoyed it. It's my first book, uh, Squadcast. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, George. Okay. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker, and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by OrthoCarolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. OrthoCarolina, you improved.